0: If you have your Bibles, please open them to 1 John. And we're going to start with chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, May God bless the reading of his word. Um, So we're going to do a quick introduction uh, to the book of 1 John. And I've decided I want to lay out a few points concerning authorship, date, location, and the reason why he's writing this particular epistle. That way we can kind of, when we continue on, we we know where we're at. Um, In regards to authorship, there was a time when it was doubted that John, the son of Zebedee, the apostle of Christ, was the author of the... Joanine or Johannine uh, epistles and the Gospel of John. But until recently, most scholars concluded that the letter was pseudepigraphal. Written, means that it was written by someone pretending to be John, but wasn't really John. We see much of this kind of writing during this time period, uh, books such as First Enoch, um, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Peter, etc., all are considered pseudepigraphal. It is also one of the reasons why those particular books were actually rejected by the Christian canon. Um, Recently, however, scholarship has done an about-face on the issue, so that the Apostle John is making a comeback as the author of the epistles and of the Gospel of John. And if not the Apostle John, then at least um, one who was a disciple of Christ, who was also an eyewitness the way that John was. Um, I personally hold to the view that the Apostle John did write the gospel and that he did write these letters since it is well rooted in the historical consensus among those who lived directly after the apostles. And the evidence brought up on recent scholarship, in my opinion, leans more in this direction. Also, because the letters were canonized later, it implies that they were considered to be authentic letters from the Apostle John, which gives weight to the argument for John writing the letters. So that's the first thing. John was likely the the Apostle John who wrote the letters. Um, The second is concerning the date, and that's not really that much disputed. Most scholars conclude that it was written no later than the 90s A.D., and part of the reason for this is that both Polycarp and Papias, who were followers of Christianity after um, the apostles, were around the 100s, and they actually quote John in their own letters, and they consider it to be authoritative. Um, So this implies that the letters were well known among Christians during that time period early on. The third is concerning location, and that's not disputed really either. Uh, Most scholars tend to agree that it was written in or from um, Ephesus. Historically, John continued to his apostolatism, apostolic ministry in Ephesus after the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. The letter was likely written to the churches surrounding Ephesus which when one considers the map which I'm going to show in one second um, would include all the churches included in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. This of course should not surprise us if we assume that John also wrote the letter of Revelation. So let's go ahead and look at the map real quick and I'll, I'll make a, just show you. And I think this is working. Yep. Oh. All right, so we got Ephesus right here, and we also have Laodicea, we have Colossae, we have Philadelphia, we have Smyrna, we have Sardis, and all of those are actually mentioned in Revelation. So it's likely that John, who is in Ephesus at the time, wrote the letter to these surrounding churches in order to keep them, as we'll see, the goal of the letter, um, in the faith, so to speak. So as we continue forward, that's our location. That's where these were originally written to. And does that mean it has no effect for us? No, of course. It has effect for us as well um, as believers. And we'll see that as we continue on through John. I know, right? I actually got this. Mike found it. I'm just saying. It's neat. I don't know. Let me get rid of this, Mike. Let me pick up my papers. All right. Now, finally, the likely reason for the letter is for those churches who have begun hearing false teachings concerning Jesus himself. There seems to have been some heretical movement um, which argued Jesus was not a real person. It was probably stems from some Gnostic teaching which began finding its way into these churches, though we can't be sure if it was truly Gnostic in nature or if it was just a pre-Gnostic teaching which later developed into full-fledged Gnosticism. Regardless um, of who began the heretical teaching or what that teaching is specifically, John exhorts his readers to hold fast to the proclamation they heard concerning the truth of Jesus Christ, who came in time, space, history, and flesh. And it's with that that we begin now, after I've gotten all that technicality out of the way, right, to the actual verses. So verse 1. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. John begins his letter similarly to how the Gospel of John begins. We notice he starts off the beginning of um, the Gospel with John 1. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John opens with a similar statement, that is, um, that which was from the beginning, and we have heard and we have seen. We may wonder what John means when he says, from the beginning, Some have argued that it means the incarnation, so when Christ came in human flesh. Others have held that it was when the Spirit came down during Jesus' baptism. Both of these are possible, but it is more likely a representation of Christ's pre-existence before the beginning of the world. Hence, before the creation of the cosmos, Christ existed. He was before the beginning. Now, John does something interesting in focusing on the evidence of the coming of the Word. Throughout this, this, John uses the first person plural. Um, The question we want to ask is, who is in view when John says, we? The likeliest explanation represents him and the other apostles. It may also include the other disciples of Jesus, other than the twelve, who were also eyewitnesses of the events. It's with this we consider what they have witnessed. First, he focuses on that which they have heard. To hear implies that they experienced Christ speaking. They were there when he taught and they listened to him when he spoke. This is, in and of itself does not hold much evidential weight in the ancient world. Um, simply put, all because one heard something wasn't enough for the evidential purposes. Though it should be noted that hearing is adequate... In, pro, in the proclamation of testimony concerning redemption, that is the gospel. John, however, does not end with just hearing Jesus, though, does he? He continues on to say, which we have seen with our eyes. This further urges the argument of the evidence of Christ's coming, that they were able to see him means that, they, that he had a physical body. They could attest to the fact that Jesus did have flesh as any other human. Jesus was not just a spirit, but a person with a physical body. Some might find it redundant for John to take the next next step with which we looked upon. Yet, if the previous saying concerning seen with the eyes focuses merely on seeing Jesus, this statement makes a deeper impact of bearing witness to Christ. And it makes it more emphatic. Perhaps to recognize not only that they beheld Jesus with their eyes, but they also beheld all the miraculous events that took place, including and especially his resurrection. Now, the final act of evidence involves them touching with their hands. In essence, the apostles and the early disciples were able to experience Christ in full. It was not that Jesus was not a person, but exactly the opposite. If he were only a spirit, for example, then they would not be able to touch him. But as it is, they could. It may also represent touching without realizing what it was that was being touched. Uh, We just went over Ruth and Boaz, and it's similar to them at the threshing floor when Boaz groped around for his blanket and he um, found Ruth instead. This wouldn't make sense. He didn't understand what it was that he had touched until he realized, oh, this is Ruth. Um, And this is kind of what's happening here. They didn't understand who it was that they were touching. They didn't understand what it was um, for Jesus to be resurrected, the word of life, to be in their very midst. The conclusion is that what it was that they experienced was, in fact, the word of life. When one considers this statement as a whole, it is very fascinating That which was from the beginning, from before the beginning, came into their midst. They were able to experience this preexistent word of life with their eyes, with their ears, even with their hands. Again, clearly, this is an extreme, a radical statement to be made. And it's with that we go to verse 2. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it. And testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. John reiterates what he just said in the previous verse, that the Word of life was made manifest, and we have seen it. If the Word had not been made manifest and it would not have been po- then it would have been impossible for them to have experienced what they did concerning Jesus' miracles and in particular, his resurrection. But as it is, they have experienced it. Because he did come, the word was made manifest among them. It is because of this that they testified and they proclaimed eternal life. Because they were witnesses to the manifestation of the word of life, they testified and proclaimed the gospel of eternal life. There are two points of eternal life that is present. The first is Christ himself, who is the definition, the epitome, is himself the eternal life. The second is eschatological, end times, um, eternal life, which is given to those who are in Christ. The likelihood is high that the eternal life discussed here represents Jesus because of the final portion of the verse which says, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Again, we hear an echo of the Gospel of John. The point of both is that Christ is within proximity of the Father, which from a Trinitarian perspective makes sense since both Father and Son are God. And now we come to verse 3. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Verse 3, again, reiterates what was said in the previous verses concerning the experience of the apostles and disciples concerning Christ. They have experienced Christ. They have seen Him and have heard Him. They knew His teachings because they were with Him. They knew Him because they had been with Him. It is through this knowledge that they proclaim the gospel of the word of life, of the eternal life, to these churches, to these individuals. John then goes on to the reason for the proclamation, which was that they would have fellowship with us. Again, us likely represents the apostles and the disciples. That is partly the goal then of the letter itself, so that the community of saints may be preserved in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. However, the great fellowship is not merely between humans, John recognizes that the fellowship the apostles and disciples share is not only with each other, but most importantly with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. It is at this point that John emphatically declares who it is that they have witnessed. They have witnessed and experienced the very Son of God, who is the Word of Life, who is Jesus Christ. To have fellowship with the Father and the Son is the grand thesis for proclaiming Christ. John wanted them to continue with the Father and feels responsible to them within the faith. John is specifically writing to these individuals who belong to a believing community. They have heard the gospel already, who have had the word of life proclaimed to them already. It is with this in mind John seeks to help them in their fellowship by encouraging them in what they have already heard. We now come to verse 4. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. If the previous verse focused on the reason for, pro- for the proclamation of the disciples and apostles concerning the word of life, then this verse establishes the goal of writing to the churches who have already had the gospel proclaimed. The reason, so that our joy may be complete. The original joy, which comes from the proclamation of the gospel, is that those who have heard the message receive it. There is joy for every person who has a hard heart that is turned to flesh. Yet there is a reality that there are false gospels being proclaimed, and a reality that the seeds which are spread fall not on good soil, but among many other soils. So for their joy to be complete represents a desire for them to see that which they had planted continue to grow. They do not want to see these churches fall into false teachings. Instead, they desire full joy in knowing that these congregations are safe within the context of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That they are not falling sway to false beliefs concerning the coming of Christ. Their joy, then, is found in in proclaiming Christ and experience the shared joy of those who were once dead in their sins coming to life. The main point of this introduction, of these four verses, is to give us a brief glimpse into the purpose of the letter itself. John will be refuting certain claims made by those who were once part of the fellowship of believers, but are now separated because of false beliefs. The end goal is that those receiving the letter will be encouraged to remain faithful to what was proclaimed to them, that the joy of those who did the proclaiming may be complete. Now, it's at this point we come to our applications. The first one is evidence. A short note I want to make concerns the evidence. And I'm going to warn you in advance, this is not really a full discussion on textual criticism and all that scholarly stuff, but it's, it's just a few minor points that we'll see how it goes. In modern biblical scholarship, the Bible itself has been under a great deal of scrutiny. If you go to the majority of universities today, you will find that the biblical studies departments, in the majority of them, are filled with professors and teachers who hold a less than favorable view of the scriptures. Generally, many of them have taken to higher criticism, which became prevalent in the 1800s and continues on to today. While it is true that the Bible has come under much attack over the past century, there has been a new wave of biblical scholarship that is starting to take the scriptures as truthful evidence for the events which they claim. In Old Testament studies, the furtherance of archaeology, for example, has continued to show that the scriptures are more reliable than many once thought. In the New Testament, there is scholarship on the text, which is making it even more evident that the text is, as, is a reliable historical record of events that took place in the first century. In other words, the evidence they provide is becoming more verifiable to us today. Part of what we see today is such evidence. When John describes hearing, seeing, and touching the word of life, he is presenting evidence through his witness of the events. He, along with the other disciples of Christ, were eyewitnesses to the events that took place. They were there when Jesus performed his miracles. They were there to visit the empty tomb. They heard and they saw the risen Lord and could touch his resurrected flesh. Their witness, then, is great evidence to the events that took place. Simply put, if as some believe the disciples were liars, if they did not really have the experience that they did, then why were they willing to die for something that they themselves made up? Further, why would they die for a lie? The answer is they wouldn't. There is no rational reason for them to accept the martyr's death if they themselves were the one who were perpetrating a lie or propagating a lie. No, the disciples believed in Christ not because of a lie, but because they knew from experience that it was the truth. The evidence they had was so overwhelmingly in favor of the risen Lord, of the coming of eternal life, this pre-existent word of flesh, that they had no other choice than to proclaim that the word has come. The point of this is to encourage you to trust the evidence of witness. It is a strong witness that has echoed through two millennia and will continue to reverberate past our own lifetimes. We can trust the events that took place were truth, that they were recorded by individuals who were either first-hand witnesses themselves, such as the case with John, or were speaking directly with those who had truly experienced Christ, such as Luke. These men were not trying to fool us, they weren't trying to fool anyone, but desiring to capture the truth of what occurred in a reliable manner for those who would hear the proclamation and believe. Now, this leads us to our second point. If we consider the first statement John makes, the whole thing is rather fascinating. When we consider that the preexistent word was able to be heard, that he was able to be seen, and that he was able to be touched, we find something impossible occur. The word becoming flesh. As Christians, we understand the incarnation to be of the greatest mysteries of God. We do not comprehend it fully. And one could argue that we will still wonder in awe over the incarnation on the other side of eternity forever. Yet in the opening of 1 John it is not only the incarnation which is in view, instead it is just as significant for the two kinds of fellowship which occurs when the incarnate word is proclaimed. The first kind of fellowship is the fellowship among believers. We see in verse 3 which says that which we have heard, which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. When the gospel is proclaimed and people believe, we see a radical transformation in these individuals who believe the proclamation of the gospel. It is from darkness to light. It is from death to life. It is a new person being created, a heart of stone being being turned into a heart of flesh. It is a person who is no longer an enemy of truth, but a lover of truth. So when this transformation occurs, there becomes a new fellowship with this individual. No longer is the person another person dead in sin. Instead, this person becomes a brother or sister in Christ. The fellowship which is in Christ between the two believers comes in full force, changing the dynamic of the relationship. All too often... We can consider our Christian lives a matter of individualism. All too often, people believe that it is them and God, and that's it. They think community is overrated, and that most would likely just get in the way of their spirituality. People just hinder me. They just hinder us, they think. It is so easy for us to assume wrongly that we don't need other people in our lives. Yet this text here shows the exact opposite to be true. In fact, it is one of the very reasons the gospel is being proclaimed, so that they would have fellowship with the individuals to whom they proclaimed it. While it is very important for us to recognize our uniqueness as individuals with the image of God imprinted on us, we also need to remember that community is not a burden, but a joy and a blessing. For the Christian, the battle against sin comes from every side. It comes from within, it comes from without. Instead of having us deal with sin on our own, God did the exact opposite by providing for us a fellowship with each other for our safety and for our benefit. Safety in that we all recognize our fallenness and our own struggle against sin and can share with one another our personal struggles benefit to help us overcome the struggles and temptations that occur in our lives because we live in a fallen world. One must ask the question, why is it that we are so afraid of each other? Is it possible that too many congregations have a bad rap when it comes to things like confession? Are we scared to let others know what our struggles are because then they will know who we really are? Is it possible we have allowed our congregations to become hotbeds of self-righteousness? The simple truth is the fellowship of our community should run deep. It should allow us to be honest with one another. When one is open about a struggle, we should encourage them. There have been too many individuals who have been so hurt because when a temptation to sin is revealed, the automatic response is, Well, I cannot believe it. That person struggles in that way? That's shocking. Why can't we believe it? Do none of us struggle? I know I do. Do you? No one's saying yeah. (laughs) Do we all succeed in the struggle? Do you succeed in the struggle? I don't. Sometimes I fall. Of course we don't. But we would more, we would succeed more if we walked with each other rather than around each other. It is scary to talk about this kind of fellowship because each of us knows ourselves, and we can be scared of what other people think. But if we all know ourselves so well, then our response to each other should be love, grace, and mercy for those who struggle. The benefits of this fellowship is great if we love one another as brothers and sisters of Christ let's be encouraged to proclaim the gospel to bring others into this fellowship as well. And let's make sure that this fellowship is one which is founded upon the gospel of Jesus Christ and the love of God found in him. Now before we go any further, it should also be of note that this is not the only fellowship which is brought to the forefront when the proclamation of the gospel occurs. It is not only to bring us together in a community of love, despite what some may think. We also find, John say, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the great reason for the fellowship amongst other believers, because in this we can have fellowship with Christ. Of all that is impossible to occur, it is this. How can we, finite beings who are but a breath of air in our lungs, ever have fellowship with? With an infinite God. How is it possible that we are able to comprehend, to grasp, the God who is eternal when we are not eternal? When we have a beginning and an end. Is it possible for us to even begin to have this? The answer John gives is the emphatic, yes, it is possible. He can give such an emphatic yes because he was one who experienced firsthand the fellowship we can now have with our God. And he continued to have that fellowship after Christ descended. It is because of the impossible that the impossible could happen. It is because the pre-existent word became flesh we can have fellowship with God. Both of these things are impossible, and yet they are done by God to fill His own cup with so much glory that it overspills onto us so that we can become full too. We partake of the impossible when we proclaim that the impossible has occurred. When we proclaim that the Word, Jesus Christ, came into time, space, history, and flesh, we proclaim that there can now be fellowship with God through Christ. How profound a thing to consider. How much more should we desire to proclaim the gospel to those around us, knowing that it is through this proclamation that others can join into this sacred fellowship? It should cause us to want to encourage and join John and the apostles in proclaiming that the word has come and we can attain fellowship with God through this word, through Christ. In the end, it is not only this fellowship which occurs, but something even more extravagant occurs. Because we know through today's text that not only the word of life, but the word of eternal life comes. The impossible ramification continues in that one, what was once our finite existence becomes infinite. We too attain eternality. However, It is not through what we can do which we attain eternal life, but through Jesus Christ. He is the word of eternal life. It is when we have this fellowship, when the word of eternal life, um, when we are able to have eternal life, it is through the word of eternal life that we are able to have eternal life itself. Therefore, the impossible comes in full circle. First with the preexistent word of life coming in time, space, history, and flesh. Then, us being able to have fellowship with this word of life. And therefore, the final, attaining eternal life through our fellowship with the word of eternal life. In all of this, we should rejoice. Just within these few verses, we should fall on our knees and praise God for what He has done through His Son, Jesus Christ, and the fellowships we can now have with each other and with God Almighty. Do not let the incarnation be a small thing, nor the resurrection. Instead, let's worship the God who did the impossible, who gave us grace, mercy, love, in these fellowships through his word of life, his Son, Jesus Christ. Now this leads us to our final point. I suppose we've hit on the gospel a lot through these four verses. Amazing the way the gospel, it seems, is so clearly seen within all of scriptures, always calling to us. The same gospel the apostles proclaimed is still being proclaimed 2,000 years later. Praise God for the gospel of Christ. This gospel begins with our origins. It begins with God who created all things by the power of his word. Last of all, he created humanity to be his image bearers. It is because God is a God of love, reason, knows, can be known, is moral, has personhood, and displayed Hesed, we can as well. It is here we find the greatest reason for dignity, sanctity, and worth of human life. Yet like God, we are also able to choose. We could choose to follow God in obedience in life or follow disobedience in sin and death. We chose the latter and have continued to make that choice ever since. It is because of this, our relationships with God, ourselves, each other, and the world are broken. It is because of sin, we continue to accrue a greater moral guilt before our God every day. Not just a feeling of guilt, but true guilt before a righteous judge. Thankfully, God displayed his majesty despite our transgressions. He sent his light and spoke his word of life into our darkness, and that is Jesus Christ. Jesus lived, he died, and he rose again in time, space, history, and flesh. It is through him our relationships can be reconciled, so we can have true fellowship with each other and with God. It is by his blood we are saved from our guilt. His victory in life over death becomes our victory in life and over death. All that is required of us is two things. The first is repentance. We are to turn away from our sins and turn toward God. We are to live lifestyles which glorify God rather than sin. We are to live according to the scriptures in step with the spirit of God. The second is faith in Christ. We are to recognize our total dependence upon the son of God for our salvation. It is not what we can do, but what Christ has done which saves us. Apart from Christ, there can be no salvation, for there is no other word of life. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the Scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone that we are saved. For those who remain in disobedience, there can only be condemnation. None of us can stand before God, our righteous judge, with our own merits in hand. All of our good deeds are as filthy rags compared to the holiness and the righteousness of God. Therefore, to go before God apart from the word of life will lead only to death and judgment for sin. For those who are obedient, though, there is no longer condemnation. Instead, they become children of God Most High. They have renewed fellowships with themselves, others, and God. They have victory over, in life over death through Christ. They inherit an eternal kingdom where they will experience the peace and the love of God forever. It is my hope that these verses of 1 John hit hard the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That as we continue on through this epistle, we will see the glory of God displayed through the teachings of the apostles of Christ. And that we would be encouraged to live in the light of the word of life. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the apostles who diligently and faithfully proclaimed what it is that you taught. And even went so far as to die for you giving us the great encouragement and the great knowledge that this is not made up. This is real. This is the truth. And you have given us the truth, the word of life, as a free gift. So, Lord, let us continue to be led down this path of faith. Continue to guide your people. And let us never forget that it is through your Son, Jesus Christ, we are saved. Amen. Please rise as we sing our final hymn. Which I forget is, what is this?